that your name would be lifted up, that we would learn more about you, but Lord, that you would challenge us and strengthen us, that you would give us what we need to keep serving you in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And we are going to try to move a little faster tonight. We have been seven weeks in the first nine verses of the book of Revelation. And as I was going through tonight's lesson, I said, boy, we could spend another nine weeks in the next nine verses. But let's, let's try to move just a little quicker tonight, if we can. Uh, and, and we have really set the stage, as has been uh, set here in the book of Revelation, it takes us a little longer uh, maybe to really develop the picture and everything that is being spoken about. Of course, in the life of John the Apostle, these things were all happening right now. This is what was going on. Uh, but last week we spent some time in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and and uh, I was just uh, le uh, looking through some commentaries, and, uh, and one of the authors said, Ah, he must have been involved in charismatic worship. And I'm going, you know, that is really interesting because charismatic worship wasn't invented until about the 1920s. So it would have been a little hard for John the Apostle to be involved in that. What it simply meant is where we went in the Bible, walking in the Spirit, being led of the Spirit. That's where John was. It was the Lord's Day. It was Sunday. He could not attend church because he had been banished from population, from, from the regular civilization. He was under punishment of the Roman Empire. But he said, it's Sunday. I'm going to worship the Lord anyway. Now, please, don't you use that for an excuse to stay home and say, I'll be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day at home. Uh, you need to be in, in the Spirit with God's people in the place that God has called us to assemble together. Amen. And uh, he heard a voice behind me, it says here. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And uh, I'm not pretending to unlock all the secrets, but uh, I believe one of the reasons why the Lord came up behind him is when we get to verse 17, when John finally sees the Lord who's speaking to him, he falls at his feet as dead. Uh, he God wanted him to get the message first and then be overcome with the presence of the Lord. Second, he says here, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now, we hear this idea of a trumpet talking about God's voice the first time on Mount Sinai. 
When God called the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, they encamped around the base of the mountain. It said a trumpet began to sound louder and louder and louder until Moses spoke and then God answered him with a voice. Now, I know uh, most of you have probably at one time or another seen that uh, wonderful fictional movie called The Ten Commandments. You say, oh, Pastor, I thought that was real. Uh, most of what was in that movie was fictional. Uh, about the only thing they got halfway right was the Dead Sea was high, and, and uh, of course they were just movie, uh, making a movie of a waterfall and playing it backwards. Uh, but you know, other than the special effects, it was a wall of water on both sides. Uh, but the children of Israel as a nation, and remember, there were 600,000 footmen. There was about two and a half, maybe three and a half, four million people encamped about the base of that mountain. They heard God speak to them the Ten Commandments. And by the time God was done giving them the Ten Commandments, just a few verses in your Bible, they were so afraid that they came to Moses the next day and said, Moses, why don't you go get God's law and let him speak to you and you speak to us because we're so afraid of God's voice that we're going to die if we have to hear everything come from God. Now, how many of you have ever thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could just hear God speaking to me his word? But let me explain something to you. If the children of Israel were so afraid after hearing only the Ten Commandments that they thought they would die if they heard any more, how many of you are still ready to hear? That's why God wrote it down. And that's and we're going to touch on that in a little bit here. But when you read about the rapture, when Jesus calls his church, and of course the rapture is a word that we've invented. It just means a time uh, of great joy. Uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, with the last trump in First Corinthians. Uh, maybe I'm going to mix these up. Let's just take a moment and turn there. First uh, Thessalonians 4. Verse 13, I'll start reading. You catch up with me when you get there. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now verse 18 is one of the most ignored verses in all the Bible. 
Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I've heard much preaching on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ about you better get ready or you're going to be left behind. No, listen. This is the comfort of the Christian. And we're going to hear that trump. And we're going to be caught up with the Lord. And let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what we call a parallel passage, talking about the same thing, 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll start reading in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall, it, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, these passages are talking about Jesus' return for his church. And it's interesting, when we get to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, we hear this same imagery. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, as it were of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither. And so, this voice as a trumpet is something that we hear identified with the God that gave the law on Mount Sinai with the Lord Jesus Christ coming back from his, for his church. And I believe Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the letters to the churches have been completed. And we hear this voice as, as, as of a trumpet saying, come up hither, the door in heaven is open." And these are some of the reasons, and not all of them, is why we believe in what we call the pre-tribulational rapture of the church or the catching away of the church before the tribulation begins. And um, so this same voice is identified here and his command. He identifies himself as the Alpha the Omega, the first, and the last. And if we go right back to, um, oh, wait a minute, um, verse 8, those same words are used, I am Alpha, Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And that term is only used of the God of heaven. And so Jesus Christ is identifying himself as the God of heaven. And by the way, he did that often in his earthly ministry. In the night that he was betrayed, Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, how long time have I been with you, Philip, and yet hast thou not known me? Jesus is identifying, and we'll see when we get to chapters 4 and 5, more 
of the unity of the Godhead, one God, three persons. You say, how do you explain that? You know, I really don't. Because I can't. The fact is, the Bible says there is one God. Yet it says this God has revealed himself to us as the Father, the Son, the Word, the Son of Man, the Son of God, all titles of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, all different titles that belong to the Holy Spirit, but one God. He says here, what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. And we'll get to the seven churches in a minute, but 13 other times, 14 including this one, John is told to write. Actually, once of those 14 times, he's told not to write. He said not to, to write these things, but his given direction from God on his writing. And here is one of the key phrases to understanding the book of Revelation. John was a first century man. Never saw a car. Never saw a bus. Never saw a rocket. And, and by the way, all of those things are relatively new as far as history is concerned. I mean, I don't even, let's see, the automobile, I don't even believe it's 150 years old yet. Maybe certain prototypes, but automobiles were not plentiful in this country until well into the 20th century. Uh, the average person did not own an automobile until after World War II. That is modern history. John is seeing what is revealed in the scriptures and he is going to write what he saw. And so, but let's not be of the group that tries to make the locust that flew out of the pit attack helicopters flying out of a cave and, and some of these strange things that people in modern day uh, do we want to keep with the writing, but if we're going to understand what John is writing, we have to look in the time period in which he lived, the things with which he was familiar and understood, and we will take his descriptions on the basis of those things. And, uh, you know, when it says that the, the woman was given wings like an eagle, I've read commentaries where it says, see, they're going to fly the entire nation of Israel in planes to a special place. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, it's talking about the speed with which they moved, not necessarily it was in an airplane. And so we have him saying, what thou seest, write in a book. Now, John was to write these things. He remember the revelation did not belong to John. The revelation was the personal property of Jesus Christ. It was given to him by God the Father, and he was showing it, he was revealing it, he was pulling back the curtain of time, 
as we will discuss in, in, in other verses as we go down through here tonight. And John was just simply going to record what he saw. Now, this message was to be sent under the authority of the Almighty to seven churches. By the way, were there more than seven churches in what the Bible calls Asia at this time? Oh, yeah, there were a lot more than seven churches. Paul started a lot more than seven churches, and many of these churches are not even mentioned in the book of the Acts as having a, a Pauline or a, a, an origin in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Some of these were churches that were started by people who got saved in the churches that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas started on their first missionary journey. Much like we have today, churches start churches. You don't have just a little group of people coming together and saying, okay, let's have church. Now, many people do that, and many people down through history have done that. But there is absolutely no excuse in our day and time for you to think that that is necessary when you can find churches that already preach and teach the Bible. This is what we believe is what we call the authority of the local church. When our church was started, I was commissioned and sent out by Cleveland Baptist Church and its then pastor Roy Thompson to start the Open Door Bible Baptist Church in Astoria and of course we didn't even have a name at that point we just knew that the Lord wanted us to start a church here and we got support and the Newburgers guess what they're out of our church they're raising support right now and by God's grace they're going to start a church in Greenpoint Brooklyn and Lord willing, they will not be the first and the last. Uh, Brother Hiram Davis has founded the Cornerstone Bible Baptist Church, organized from our church. And the reason why this happens is because Jesus directs his message to his church. Now, he lists the churches here, and I gave a summary. The first church to church at Ephesus we have the story here. Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus seeing this church established and personal ministry, much persecution, many things happened. And if you have time, read the account in the book of Acts. The church at Smyrna is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. We have no connection to any other passage in Scripture. The church at Pergamos is the same. The church at Thyatira, now it's interesting, Lydia, the first convert in Philippi in Greece, Macedonia, uh, was of the city of Thyatira, but she was of the Jewish faith when she came to the city of Philippi. She sat at the riverside, as was the Jewish tradition, when you had no synagogue to attend. You found a river, you sat by, picked a spot and sat there and prayed and other Jewish people who were traveling through would know that uh, that was where people went. That's why Paul, when he went into the city of Philippi, he inquired and he found Lydia because she was already a believer in the God of the Old Testament 
And she just needed to understand that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Don't let somebody chop your Bible up into little pieces. If they start doing that, just find you a new Bible teacher. Amen? Uh, we believe all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And God wants us to study the whole Bible. But that's our only mention of Thyatira. Sardis, same thing. Philadelphia, not the city on the Delaware River, all right? Uh, this, that, this is the Philadelphia from which the city in uh, uh, Pennsylvania may have taken its name, though actually the Quakers wanted to build a city of love. And, of course, we affectionately refer to Philadelphia as the city of brotherly shove today, and uh, which is a little closer to the truth. I have a preacher friend down there. He says, come to Bethel, Bethel Baptist Church. He says, where the men are men, and so are the women. And uh, that's how he introduces his church. I don't know if he does that at home, but whenever he's out in other churches, that's what he says. And... Uh, and I've talked to him about that. He said, I'm not kidding, brother. And I've been there, and he wasn't. And uh, so the, the simple truth of the matter is uh, most of these churches, and the last one, of course, the church at Laodicea is mentioned several times in the book of Colossians. And as Paul is writing a letter to the Colossians, he said, I want you to read the letter that I sent to Laodicea. And I want Laodicea to read the letter that I sent unto you. He said, well, why don't we have the letter to Laodicea? Because it wasn't scripture. It was just Paul writing a letter to a church. And you say, but wasn't the Colossians and the Philippians and Galatians just letters that Paul wrote to a church? Yes. But this is what we call the difference between inspired or scriptural letters and non-scriptural letters. God preserved the scripture. You say, what happened to the letter to the Laodiceans? Uh, probably the same thing that happened to your grandpa's love letters to your grandma. Uh, they get lost over time. They're not inspired. They're not preserved. This book is. And we could spend the whole evening on the history of the canon of the scripture, but let me just suffice it to say this. No man or group of men sat down and said, this is the Bible. Yes, I know, if you read a history book or any Bible commentary, you're going to read about that. Never happened. What really did happen was God's churches used God's word, and it didn't take very long for that to be noticed, codified, meant put into a book, and as early as 120 A.D., no later than 150 A.D., we have translations of Bibles being written about this. Not only were the books collected, they were being translated into other languages. And so uh, God preserved his word, and this is the mentions of these churches. And uh, there's been an awful lot said, but uh, how that the churches typify different church ages. Uh, we're not going there, my friend. There's not one verse in the Bible that says that. 
And here's how we know that an interpretation is scriptural or not. You see, if I can open up the Bible and find the exact same thing that you find, or you go home and study your Bible after I've taught on it and say, yeah, that's, that's what the preacher was saying, it's in the Bible, then you can know that it's true. But I can pick up five different commentaries written in five different years or decades by five different people trying to explain the church ages as represent, and everyone will be different. Therefore, we know that it's just by the whim and the fancy of the commentator who's putting this idea over Scripture, because if it were really there, everybody would come to the same conclusion. There would be corroborating historical evidence, of which there is none. And so what we simply have is we have seven churches chosen by the Lord himself to receive this revelation. And so in verse 12, we, I mean verse 11 ends the command to write, this is what he heard. And in verse 12, we look at the next little section here. And it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, I just want to make one more point here. Verse 11 and verses 18, 19, and 20 were all the speaking that was done by the Savior. Verses 12 through uh, 17, and he starts speaking actually in verse 17, is John recording what he saw. John actually spends more time talking about what he saw than the Savior did, talking about what uh, he wanted John to do. And in fact, verses 18 through 20 here, it, Jesus is spending most of his time explaining the things that John saw. And what we want to understand is, faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. So now we move on to what John saw. He's, the first thing he saw, seven golden candlesticks explained in verse 20 seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches those seven golden candlesticks were in a circle and the savior was standing in the midst of them in the middle of them but John saw the candlesticks first now, how many of you have been here for our Sunday night on the tabernacle? We've been going through the furniture of the tabernacle, and, and there's a lot of overlap here. The candlestick was the only source of light. This candlestick was made purely of gold. There was nothing about the nature of man or from man that gives light. Light only comes from God. And yet, why does Jesus seem to transfer this picture of his deity and of his person giving light to the world to his churches. Well, it may be that 
the church is the body of Christ. If the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the light giver, then what is the business of the church? It's to be giving light to the world in which we live. How many of you understood everything that you needed to know to get saved the first time you heard it? How many of you needed more than once to get saved? How many of you needed a whole lot of time to get saved? Okay. You see, this is why the church is so important. How many of you ever thought you were saved when you weren't? It takes a while, doesn't it? Without the church doing its work of giving the light continually, there are many people who will only hear a partial truth and they will not get enough to be saved. You've got to put yourself under the preaching. And, and again, I, I always preface this or, uh, with, with the simple statement, and I don't want anyone to ever get the idea that I think I'm the best preacher in the world. But I do want you to know I preach the best book in the world. And so, therefore, you need to come and be a part because you're going to get light. How many of you learned things after you got saved? from the Bible. You see, it's an ongoing process. And there are many people that will come to the light and never get saved. But we go back to the verses in Ezekiel and on through the Bible about the watchman and the duty of the Christian to warn the world and the people in, and, and the people surrounding them of the message of the gospel. Guess what? That's what church is all about. You're, you do not have to win the world alone. In fact, I promise you, if you try, you're going to fail. You are to have the support and help of an individual local assembly. That's what a church is. And by the way, that assembly is assembled together based upon the truth that is in these words as recorded in the scripture alone. And of course, that's what everybody says. Uh, there's not a church that's ever existed that comes and says, well, uh, you know, we believe the Bible a little tiny bit, but if you really want to know the truth, because nobody would go to that church. So they do it a lot more carefully. They say, you, you need to understand the Bible, but... The way to really understand the Bible is Joseph Smith's last testament. Barf. Uh, sorry, that wasn't dignified, was it? But it does make me sick when someone offers something else and says you can only understand the Bible through this other book. 
You can only understand the Bible through this book. I'm talking about the Bible. You want the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible is its own best commentary. By the way, if God doesn't explain it here, don't read somebody else's book over there to try to figure it out. Just let God handle what he doesn't explain, all right? Uh, you'll be a lot safer that way. And by the way, I've never met a person who is trying to explain the things God doesn't explain that isn't ignoring the simple things they could be doing if they were only putting some attention there. Amen? Oh, me? Let's pay attention to the parts that we can live and work. And those parts we don't understand, let me tell you, will take care of themselves. Now, Joseph, how about you turn around and sit still? All right? Miss Frieda's trying hard, but... Now, let's keep moving. After the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, who was John referring to when he said the Son of Man? He said it looks like Jesus, amen? But it didn't look like Jesus when he was here on earth. That's why he says like unto. There was a resemblance there. There was enough of a resemblance to say, hey, he looks like Jesus, but it's not quite there. It's a little different than when he was here on earth. And we go through this description, and it's amazing. He says, clothed with a garment down to the foot. So he had a garment that came from his shoulders all the way down to his feet, and he was girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Now, Girdles are not what the modern-day word means. A girdle is a belt. It's what tied your clothes together. And he had that golden belt wrapped around his chest, is what the scripture is simply saying there. His head and his hairs were white like wool. So when John looked at him, his hair was white, as white as snow. It had a gleaming reflection to it like snow did and it says his eyes were as a flame of fire and the only thing that we can put there is the color of fire under normal circumstance is a glowing red and so he had eyes that sparkled and must have moved like fire does. And that's why he explained it. Again, John is just writing what he saw. And one of the reasons why I don't want any pictures here is because you could draw a much better picture in your mind of what Scripture is really saying, if you'll think about it a little bit, than any artist could ever conceive. And I believe that's what God meant for us to do with his word anyway. And his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Now, the best way I could describe that is uh, how many of you have ever, how many of you know what the term brazing is? That's where you use a very hot torch to actually melt brass. To, it's not welding, but you use the melted brass to attach two pieces of metal together. 
Now, whenever you do that, you are supposed to, you should wear a shaded uh, goggle to protect your eyes because the burning, the, the brightness of the flame and the molten brass can actually do damage to the retina or the optic nerve there and, and hinder your sight. You can actually lose your sight by looking into the flame and that brass. But it was glowing, burning brass. Now, in Daniel... And I give the reference here, and we're not going to go there just for time tonight. But in Daniel, it said, uh, oh, let's go. I'm sorry. Daniel chapter 10. And verse 5, it says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded about with, the fine, with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like a barrel in his face as the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and feet like in color to polished brass. And so John gives us the idea, if you've ever seen brightly polished brass, it almost looks like gold, doesn't it? If it's properly polished, it's really hard to tell the difference. And here it says, as burned in a furnace. That's the only way you can get brass any brighter than polishing it, is to actually get it in that near molten state where it begins to run. And it is a, it is a bright, bright, bright gold color. And so this is the picture of the Lord Jesus. Don't listen to the Farrakhanites who say Jesus was brown because his feet were brass. That's tarnished brass, my friend. He, he was a golden color glowing in his appearance, white like snow in his face and his head. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The parts of his body that were revealed that were for uh, John to see, which were her, was his feet, was like Molten brass, like glowing brass. And it says here, his voice as the sound of many waters. And of course, we could spend all night on that voice. Everywhere Jesus spoke in his glorified state, that voice is mentioned as a great voice, as the voice of many waters and and we could chase that thing through the scriptures, but again, uh, what we're trying to do is cover more than just one phrase every night, all right? And so, this is the picture of the Son of Man. Now, in his right hand, verse 16, seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Now, Daniel said his countenance was as lightning. Uh, John says that it was so strong, it was such a brightness that it was like looking into the noonday sun. I couldn't even continually look at it without my eyes beginning to do things. Just very quickly... The seven stars, 
They were in his right hand. If you'll remember, John and James' mother came to Jesus and she said, I want one of my sons to sit on your right hand and the other on thy left. Jesus said, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of glory to Caiaphas when he was uh, condemned. He is holding these stars in his right hand. Now, there's been an awful lot said about the stars, but verse 20 says, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Now, there's been an awful lot of conjecture that each church has an angel, and that angel comes down and watches what happens in the church. Well, if that were true... Why did Jesus direct his letter to these angels that are unseen, unheard, and just watching? We look here in verse 1, and it tells us that these things were signified to John by his angel, by Jesus' angel. And twice in the book of Revelation... Jesus, I mean John, falls down to worship the messenger that is revealing this to him. And the messenger says, don't worship me. I'm one of thy brethren. And so, contrary, we could say, or different than other places in scripture, the word angel here is referring to one says, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Does that sound like somebody that's saved to you? Sure does to me. And so what we have here is the word angel, the word star, used in a different sense. And the simplest that we can come to is that its seven stars are the pastors of the churches. Because he writes the letters addressed to these people. That means they have to be in a position to obey and help the church obey the words of the letter that he's sending to the church. Amen? Now what did Paul say? If an angel shows up and tells you something different, count them accursed, right? You have to stick by the word. See, the pastor's job is to give you the word. It's your job to restudy, make sure what the pastor's teaching is actually in the book. Then you'd better do something about it. Amen? That wasn't a very good amen. You know, because we don't like to do things, do we? That means responsibility. That's a tough word. But that's how Jesus set it up. As John looks at Jesus, he's standing in the middle of these seven candlesticks. In his hand, in his right hand, are these seven stars. And in a moment, he's going to begin to dictate a letter to each one of those seven stars. Somebody said, well, why are they in his hand? Because he's going to talk to them, that's why. He's got something to say to each one of those. Does he treat any pastor different than another? And by the way, is a pastor 
of any different spiritual level than other members of the church? Absolutely not. We're going to get into that in the letters to the churches, that God is no respecter of persons, and he has a message for each one of us. The last thing that he saw was a sharp two-edged sword that went out of the mouth of the one that was like the Son of Man. By the way, I put this in here, the sword of the Word of God is only used as a weapon when Jesus himself is speaking. Don't you go using your Bible to cut up people. Uh, I've met some of these guys that are into apologetics and especially in the realm of creation and things and Boy, they'll get out their Bible and slice and dice. Listen, I can win the argument. But winning the argument is not bringing the testimony of Jesus Christ necessarily. In fact, most of the time when you're arguing and debating, by the rules and laws of debate, you're not sharing the testimony of Jesus Christ. We need to get out of the realm of debate. If you study the sword of the spirit, what is the Christian warrior supposed to do? Praying always with all prayer and supplication. You want to do battle, get on your knees. Don't go chasing the devil around the house with the Bible because he just might turn around and clobber you. Uh, In fact, I promise that's exactly what's going to happen. But you take the sword of the Spirit and let it discern what's going on in your hearts. First, I mean Hebrews 4.12. You see, all of us, every one of us in this room are innately dishonest. We are not honest with ourselves. We're not honest with our friends. We're not certainly not honest with our enemies. We are not honest by nature. It is the word of God that has to reshape us in honesty and integrity. And oftentimes, even in our desires to serve the Lord, we allow the perversions that are in our nature because of sin to distort us. That's why we need the word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let the scalpel of God's word do surgery in your soul before you start swinging around the sword of the Spirit trying to lop off somebody's head. Amen? Maybe that's a little bit about what Jesus meant about removing the moat in your own, um, the beam out of your own head before you start trying to get the moat or the speck of sawdust out of somebody else's eye. You see, these, these, this is the foundation of the book of Revelation. The revelation belongs to Jesus. He is using John to present it. The message is a message to his churches. He's got things he wants his churches to do. And I'll simply end with this. I believe the reason these seven churches were chosen is because they typify or they summarize 
what goes on and has gone on in every true church of Jesus Christ since the day he walked the earth, since he started the first church until the day that he comes to take his church. And that every church that has ever existed will benefit by reading these letters to these seven churches and taking heed to the things that are in there. And that's what we're getting ready to do. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that as we covered uh, quite a bit of information that you would give us a heartfelt desire to read and reread the passage that we've gone over and let the word speak unto us. Lord, we need the blessings that come by hearing and reading and keeping the things that are in this book, the book of Revelation as well as the whole Bible. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you need to add to that prayer some on your own, we'll close in just a few moments. But.